This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. Can a type of food represent an entire country? Depends on who you ask. Does a dish have to be invented in a particular country in order to stand as a badge of its national pride? Few things, for example, may be as American as apple pie, but people have been blending apples with sugar and pastry since the time of Chaucer. Certainly today, there are a number of foods that are considered hallmarks of their region, that a given geography makes them unique. True champagne, for example, can only come from a specific region of France. But you can certainly find sparkling wine being made in Italy, Spain, or the U.S. Cheeses like gorgonzola, parmesan, and camembert are legally protected by EU regulations and must be made in specific regions in order to bear their name. Pork pies from the English town of Melton Mowbray are even protected by international regulation to prevent would-be imitators. But what about other foods that may not have the backing of law, but similarly can be found throughout entire communities or cultures? Try to imagine Mexican cuisine without the tortilla, Japanese food without rice, or perhaps German food without the sausage. Subject to endless variations, of course, but still foods that are almost embedded in the very fabric of a country's food identity. But how long would it take to change that identity? Can politics ever be powerful enough to change the very way a country eats? Many might remember the infamous and thankfully temporary relabeling of French fries as freedom fries in the U.S. during the early 2000s. But it hardly meant people were no longer eating them. But there have been a number of times throughout history where choosing what to or what not to eat could be a clear sign of political principles. American colonists during the 1770s willingly swore off their beloved tea, protesting against British taxation. On the other side of the coin, governments themselves can try to implement changes to cuisine from the top down. The U.S. prohibition in the 1920s, for example, was a failed attempt to curb Americans' love of alcohol. Now, French fries and tea are one thing, but what if a political movement asked a country to give up its most prized and beloved culinary traditions? What force could ever lead Mexico to abandon the tortilla, for Japan to forsake rice, for Germany to say sang to the sausage? But it almost happened once. For a brief time in the 1920s and 1930s, Italy rejected the food that had been the hallmark of its cuisine for over 800 years. That's right, Italy almost got rid of pasta. Today on The Feast, we'll head back to 1930 to see how the golden age of the airplane almost led to the end of Italian cuisine as we know it. Today, over a network of 40,000 miles, Pan American Airways, 
largest of the world's great airways systems, with a fleet of 150 clipper ships, speeds men, mail, and merchandise to 40 different countries, a thrilling monument to the United States Airmail Service. Across the vast Pacific in 60 flights... Ah, those heady glory days of flying. When soaring above the clouds was still a new experience. Without the security lines, bad food, and baggage fees that have taken some, if not all, of the romance out of traveling by air. In those early years of commercial flight, during the 1920s and 1930s, the world was entranced by the potential of aircraft. New airlines like Pan Am and Imperial Airways offered the chance to see the globe in a fraction of the time of cruise ships and railways. The allure of flying infused the spirit of the age, inspiring artists, architects, and designers to incorporate modern materials into their work. Art Deco is just one example of this, representing the glory of technological progress through design. The Empire State Building, the Golden Gate Bridge, and even Los Angeles's Wiltshire Boulevard all were heavily influenced by the ideals of technology through Art Deco. These designs promoted the streamlined look of the flying age, incorporating metal and machine-made materials in a celebration of modern technology. Look at surviving 1920s tube stations in London, the Mosse House building in Berlin, or even the Basilica of the Sacred Heart in Brussels, one of the most famous examples of Art Deco design. And you'll see styles that promoted a dreamy infatuation with the future, streamlined curves of iron, concrete, and aluminum. Meanwhile in Italy, artists and philosophers were just as swept up by the love of the future as any other. The country, who had only recently unified from a variety of kingdoms and duchies into a single nation-state, was in the 1910s only just catching up to the rapid industrialization and modernization seen in other parts of Western Europe and North America. But Italians were determined to match their neighbors in the modern age. And Italy eventually was home to a movement resolutely dedicated to the hopes of tomorrow, called, understandably, Futurism. Futurism was a movement obsessed with, well, the future. The city, the automobile, air travel, automated factories, all had been made possible by technology and human innovation. The futurists were eternal optimists and considered these emblems of an ever brighter, easier future. Through their art and social demonstrations, futurists embraced the world of tomorrow and rejected any lingering romantic nostalgia for the past. Why celebrate a history checkmarked with oppression, famine, and poverty? The only way for them was forward, where no doubt industry and technology would soon solve the last of humanity's problems. And nothing epitomized the dream of the future like the airplane. Here was the realization of one of humanity's oldest dreams, the dream of flight. We could now skip lightly from continent to continent, moving through territory in minutes, what used to take days or even weeks to traverse. Surely, if flight was possible, then any other problem could similarly be solved by human industry. Futurists even called their new modern lifestyle the Aerovita, and would use the feel, style, and even sounds of flight throughout their work. Led by the Italian poet and theorist 
Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. Futurists published a number of manifestos advocating Italy's embrace of the future. Through painting, clothing design, architecture, and more, the ideals of the modern age could be expressed in any form to the futurists. Away with the past! Celebrate the now, they cried. But what did food have to do with any of this? For Marinetti and the Futurists, cuisine could also be liberated by technology. Surely science was just a few years away from perfecting a pill that could provide all the nutrition a person needed each day. The years of famine and failed harvests were surely behind humanity. Futurists even theorized that one day radios could beam nutritional waves into each home, just like music. But this didn't mean that cooking had no role in the modern age. Far from it. With nutrition taken care of by science's magic pill, chefs were now free to be what they truly were. Artists. No more worrying about fats or proteins in each dish, chefs could now use food as a medium entirely for artistic expression. Another way to celebrate the glory of the modern. Just like the age-old techniques of painting or architecture, so too were the conventions and traditions of eating to be thrown out the window. The Futurists even published a manifesto outlining their new rules for a modern world of food. Here contains the Futurist Culinary Manifesto. Above all, we believe necessary. Item 1. The abolition of volume and weight in the conception Futurists wanted people to radically rethink how and what they ate. As artists, chefs were encouraged to make each dish new and different. Forget your traditional risottos or asobucos. Just like Mama used to make? No more. Why repeat something that had already been done? Futurists loved new or unusual pairings. Anything that took food away from the dusty traditions of the past combining mussels with vanilla, or grapes with radishes. But why stop at food? Futurists wanted the dining room of the future to engage all five senses. Smell, for example. Using specific perfumes as a way of balancing the flavor of a given dish. How about touch? Now chefs could incorporate materials like silk or sandpaper that a diner would feel while eating. A new tactile way of pairing taste with touch. Of course, all this innovation left little to no room for any traditional element of the dinner table. No more knives and forks, for example. Those age-old symbols of traditional meals. Diners at futurist banquets were encouraged to touch their food. Futurist recipes often recommended slipping secret written messages into a dish that diners had to search with their fingers to find, like a new futurist kind of fortune cookie. In line with their love of the age of flying, futurists wanted their recipes to evoke the modernism of the age. Any new scientific gadget was welcomed into their kitchens. But even more so, futurists wanted eating to represent the ultimate modern form of travel, which meant evoking the metallic materials of an airplane into their dishes. One of their most famous recipes was the formidable-sounding steel chicken in which a roast chicken was filled with hundreds of metallic ball bearings in the hope of infusing the bird with a third. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. 
Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Early modern taste. While steel-tasting chicken may have been an unusual main course, and certainly a few eyebrows were raised over getting rid of knives and forks, nothing in the Futurist Cooking Manifesto prompted more outcry by Italians than the Futurists' absolute rejection of pasta. To the Futurists, pasta was all that was wrong with the old-fashioned way of eating. The low-carb advocates of their day Futurists questioned why Italy was so in love with what was to them an inferior food. At best, barely nutritious. At worst, downright harmful to the Italian nation. Futurists published article after article in Italian newspapers, arguing against the evils of pasta. Pasta does not nourish, they argued. It is filling, but it doesn't freshen the blood. Our pasta is like our rhetoric, only good for filling up our mouths. It's a short-lived bliss. Swallowed down the way it is, spaghetti poisons us and weighs us down. Our thoughts wind round each other, get mixed up, and tangled like the vermicelli we've taken in. If futurism as an artistic and social movement had flown under the radar before now, their open declaration of war on pasta made them international news. In 1930, the Chicago Tribune called the futurist leader Marinetti a villain for his anti-pasta opinions. Chefs in San Francisco got into fistfights over whether to continue to serve pasta in Italian restaurants. Of course, the movement's association with the Italian dictator Mussolini didn't really help their international reputation. As the futurists were proud nationalists, Many couldn't understand the movement's aversion to pasta. Weren't tagliatelle, spaghetti, rigatoni, all fundamentally Italian inventions? How could they abandon their own country's culinary pride and joy? But to the futurists, pasta wasn't Italian. Not even close. Although today food historians point to pasta's origins in Asia, only introduced to Europe in the later Middle Ages, Futurists sketched out an entirely different history of pasta in Italy, helping even to bring down the mighty Roman Empire and the entire classical world. For futurists believe pasta was a Germanic invention, associated with the Gothic tribes who had pillaged and plundered Rome in the 5th century. Futurists insisted that it had been the great Germanic leader Theodoric, the first barbarian king of Italy, who had called for pasta to be served in his court. To make matters worse, apparently, the traditional Gothic way of eating pasta was not with any traditional sauce, but rather to douse the whole plateful of noodles in pickle juice. Giving pasta a contributing role in the fall of the Roman Empire was a strong play to wean Italians from their love of spaghetti, But futurists faced an uphill battle the size of Mount Everest. Only with the support of the Mussolini government did the production and consumption of pasta lessen slightly during the 1920s and 30s, replaced with what the futurists advocated as a proper replacement, Italian-grown rice. 
Despite the reluctance of the Italian population to give up their noodles, the futurists soldiered on, holding international banquets showcasing their modern aeronautical cuisine and continuing to decry the hold that pasta had on the Italian appetite. And on March 8, 1931, the first truly futurist restaurant opened in the Italian city of Turin. Founded by Marinetti and other major names in the futurist movement, the Taverna Santo Palato, or the Holy Palate Tavern, was to be the showpiece of futurist cooking. Designed by futurist architects, the building was transformed into half-restaurant, half-airplane, every wall, ceiling, and floor covered with aluminum, glass, and steel, a veritable dream of the modern mechanical life. Invited to this inaugural banquet were, of course, prominent futurists, including Marinetti himself, along with painters, sculptors, and, of course, a healthy dose of journalists. The chefs of the Holy Palate organized a 14-course meal for the occasion, a representation of all that futurist cooking had come to represent. No knives, no forks, no, heaven forbid, pasta at this meal. One dish from the banquet, called in true futurist style, arrow food, consisted of four separate parts. On the plate, each guest was presented with a fennel bulb, an olive, a piece of candied fruit, and a small rectangle, each side covered in silk, sandpaper, or velvet, which the diner was expected to hold as he ate. From the kitchen came the sounds of a Wagnerian opera, along with the sounds of an airplane motor. Now, if this weren't enough, waiters also spritzed each diner with a perfume of carnations as they ate. A literal sensory overload. And this was just one dish out of 14. Now, some dishes in the banquet may have been slightly more recognizable to the assembled guests. Perhaps due to the futurists' well-known love of Italian rice, the dish named Total Rice was essentially a risotto, flavored with cheese, egg, and beer. But if the guests thought they could relax, they clearly didn't see the next few courses coming. Steel chicken, that metal poultry dish, made an appearance. And the futurists were clearly never ones to pass up the opportunity to introduce a little innuendo to the dining table. Another dish, called suggestively the Excited Pig, featured an entire salami boiled in strong coffee and fruity liqueur. Take from that what you will. Articles about the inaugural banquet at the Holy Palate Tavern helped the futurists keep up their mission to eliminate pasta from the Italian diet. A little less than a year after the opening of the restaurant, Marinetti and others even published a futurist cookbook, which contained many of the recipes featured at the opening gala, along with their collected works on the evils of pasta. But ridding noodles from Italy may have been too enormous a task, even with government backing. The Holy Palate Tavern closed only two years after it opened. But even so, it remained one of the last survivors of the futurist movement in Italy, already out of date in fashion, music, and architecture by the 1930s. Even so, futurism's legacy was profound, cited as a major contributor to such art movements as surrealism, Dadaism, and even in modern popular culture. Ridley Scott, for example, used the ideals of futurist architecture in his sets for Blade Runner. And futurist themes even occasionally pop up in modern cyberpunk literature. 
But what about futurist cuisine? Is it possible that we're currently experiencing a new wave of futurist cooking, a century after its birth? Are there echoes of futurism in what is currently called modernist cuisine, or even molecular gastronomy? Made famous by restaurants such as the Catalan El Bulli, or recent award-winning cookbooks like The Food Lab? Are the foams, gels, even sous-vide cooking styles of 21st century kitchens just the reimagined dream of the 20th century futurists? Compare the perspective towards technology and recent food trends, seen in the recent award-winning book Modernist Cuisine, written by the former chief technology officer at Microsoft, Nathan Mervold. His principles argue for cuisine to be a creative art, one that can engage all five senses. Mervold encourages chefs to creatively break culinary rules and traditions to make diners think about what they're eating. Ring any bells? Mervold and other modernist chefs encourage the use of technology in the kitchen to make new and previously impossible dishes. El Bulli was made famous by its unusual combinations of flavors and textures, popularizing perfect edible spheres made with soda siphons and sodium alginate. Wiley Dufresne's WD-50 restaurant in New York dares diners to try new combinations such as Wagyu beef with watermelon and fermented beans. Of course, modernist cuisine has not yet come out against the evils of pasta, and I don't know of any restaurants using airplane motors as sound effects. But is it possible we're currently experiencing the next generation of futurist cooking? With low-carb diets all the rage, and foams, gels, and smokers now common features of many high-class restaurants, dishes like the steel chicken and the excited pig may not be far behind. If you're interested in trying some futurist cuisine and happen to be in the Toronto area, you're in luck. We'll be holding our first-ever feast dinner on Saturday, September 10th. It'll be a chance to talk about and taste some futurist recipes, including the steel chicken. Tickets are $15, and spots are extremely limited, so act quickly. You can order tickets online through our website at thefeastpodcast.org or by emailing thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. Otherwise, if you'd prefer to try the steel chicken in the privacy of your own home, we'll put some of the futurist recipes up on our website, as well as some of the few surviving photos of the Holy Palette Tavern from the 1930s. We'll also have links to Modernist Cuisine by Nathan Mervold, and of course the Futurist Cookbook itself, along with other resources on futurism from the early 20th century. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Special thanks to Mike Port, our resident pun master and technical director. If you would like to support The Feast, please visit the donate page on our website, where you can find information on how to contribute to our Patreon campaign. And if you haven't already, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you access your podcasts. That's it for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more stories from the dining tables of history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. And get happy, chase all your cares away. Hallelujah, come get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you.
You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.